Well, good night, everybody. Good evening. Uh, welcome to RUF. My name is Elliot Everett. I'm the campus minister here. Um, and so if this is your first time tonight, we especially uh, want to welcome you. What we do every Thursday night is that we come together and we open the Bible together. And this semester, uh, we are looking at the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. So I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Spent the first few weeks looking at creation, uh, the world and existence and life as God intended it to be. But tonight, as we get to Genesis 3, what we begin to see and we'll begin to look at is life as the world has known it for now thousands upon thousands of years. Uh, And we're actually going to spend two weeks here in Genesis chapter 3 as we look at the fall. So tonight, we're just going to read the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 3. Before we look into that, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us, for revealing yourself, for allowing us to understand ourselves as we better understand you. We pray that as we open your word, that you actually would be the one to open it to us, to open our hearts, to give us faith, to hear and to see and to know and to believe. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Genesis chapter 3, starting verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. Don't know if you ever heard of it, but C.S. Lewis, uh, the great writer, writer of Chronicles of Narnia, he actually had uh, a fictional kind of sci-fi trilogy that he wrote called the Space Trilogy. Uh, And the second book, well, no, sorry, the first book of that trilogy was Out of the Silent Planet, where the main character, Ransom, is taken to Mars, where he meets the inhabitants of Mars. And in meeting the inhabitants of Mars, he actually gets the real story of Earth, uh, they want to tell him what the what the real deal is with the history of Earth, and what they what they tell him um, is that that the thing about Earth was that there was one that was exiled that Earth was exiled from the rest of the planets because it fell, and that it was ruled by the bent one. That everything in that world was bent. There was an angel who was fallen called the Bent One, and to save the rest of the inhabitants of the galaxy or whatever, uh, they, I, they exiled Earth a, apart from them. 
And it goes on to talk about that character and to talk about all the ways in which earth and life on that planet, uh, the silent planet, is, uh, is bent. And like that character, like Ransom getting, getting to kind of get a fuller picture of life on earth, kind of like him, we now as we go transition from Genesis chapter 2 to Genesis chapter 3, the author of Genesis is actually helping us also look at the world from the outside to help us get a better grasp of just what happens, what life is like in this world and why it is the way uh, that we know it and have known it to be. And what we find in Genesis 3 is something that all of us already know to be true. And it's that this world is bent. That things are not quite as they should be. Not all of us necessarily always understand what it should be. But there is a sense in which, within all humanity, and there always has been, that things are not fully as they should be or as we want them. Right? Again, you don't, have to, you don't have to search a handful of hashtags or turn on the news for like 30 seconds to see that this world is bent. Some of you have your own experiences, whether it was a parent who died or parents who got divorced, or a friend or sibling that got sick, right? Or maybe you were a victim of some type of abuse, and you know personally that this world is not as it should be, right? When it comes out now over a course of 20 years, some 200 women were violated by a man that was um, supposed to be among the most trustworthy in their lives, a doctor, And after 20 years, it finally comes out that he has violated over 200 of his patients, right? We know this world is not as it ought to be. And we see that it happens as a result of this first encounter with Satan himself. Revelation calls him that ancient serpent. Jesus calls him the father of lies. And what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that through his lies, he bends the world. He bends the will of Adam and Eve and they break, they fall prey to it. And while Genesis 2, and we, we talked about Genesis 1 and 2 and we thought about the world as God intended it and God and created it, and we saw that paradise that Adam and Eve were created for, that we were created for. When we get to Genesis 3, we start to understand why is it that Genesis 2 seems like such a foggy memory? Something that we think and long maybe to be true but doesn't seem so true and then we get to genesis 3 and we understand what actually is real because we can actually see ourselves in the garden we know what it's like to hear god call out where are you we know what it's like to hide because of our shame we know what it feels like to be expelled from the garden we know that this story didn't just happen it happens every day And so here at the fall, here we see at the heart of the fall and also the heart of sin is Satan's work of deception. But also what we're confronted with really at the end of the day is our proclivity to believe the lies. So that's what I want to look at. The three lies that we believe, that Adam and Eve believe, but also that we believe. Lies about God, lies about sin, lies about ourselves. So let's look at this. The first one is the lies about God, and it starts so innocently, right? It start, it, it's almost chilling how, how simply it starts. Did God really say? That's how it starts. The simple suggestion right there, the seeds of destruction have been sown. And you notice that Satan doesn't actually directly question God or directly accuse God of anything. He just merely opens the door in the mind of Adam and Eve for both of those. Right? And I, again, I think it's fascinating. Think about 
here at the outset that the voice of temptation, the author of Genesis does not present to us the voice of temptation as the voice of evil. They're not equated. We're not, we're not, we're not given the story of look how evil the serpent was and look at all the evil he did. No, that's not how the story uh, is presented. Actually, Genesis 3 actually kind of refuses to ask or answer the question, how did evil come into the world? It doesn't face us with personified evil that we're supposed to resist in the world. It faces us with the question of our own responsibility. Of what are the lies that we hear in the world and what are the lies that we believe What is our responsibility and the response that we make to the Word of God when it is questioned in our hearts and in our minds? And I think that's the most unsettling part of the story because it's in the ordinariness of the Garden of Eden that Satan does his work. In the ordinariness of a creature uh, in the garden. There's no horns, there's no fire, there's no pitchfork, there's no evil angel on one shoulder and nice sweet angel on the other shoulder. None of that. And so in all of his craftiness, all that subtlety, the serpent merely faces Adam and Eve with the reality of their trust in God. He actually makes them own it. Did God really say? Did you really listen to God? Did you really hear Him correctly? And do you really want to believe Him? It's so simple. It's so simple, it's chilling, in my opinion. And so he faces them with the question of the reality of their trust of God, and he simply asks them, are you going to trust him or not? And herein lies the heart of the temptation and the invitation to believe the lie, that God is not trustworthy. Is God worthy of my trust? That's where it starts. And again, he doesn't directly accuse or anything of God. He just wants Adam and Eve to own it. So psychologist Eric Erickson, who in his work, Childhood and Society, um, he said that the most basic and critical, I think we all know, we can see how and why this is true. The most basic and critical phase of childhood development is that in which the child experiences or fails to experience basic trust. Most basic and critical phase of childhood development is that in which the child experiences or fails to experience basic trust. Therefore, basic mistrust is the taproot of disorders through all the other critical phases of emotional and relational development. If you're from a broken home, a broken home that was broken before maybe you even knew what was going on in the world, you know that. You can resonate with that, right? If you've been a victim of something as a child, that resonates with you. Remember, we looked at last week, kind of that question, why does God even put this tree in the garden, right? Like, we could have avoided so much trouble, if just not, not even put the tree. But remember, what we talked about last week is because God, because God made uh, Adam and Eve in his own image, he, and because he made them for a relationship with himself, with each other, man bound to God, God bound to man, by singling out that tree, what God was doing is he was inviting them to actively pursue, actively experience, actively enjoy their relationship to Him as God, as their Maker, by trusting what He said. Remember we said, why was it that God said in the day that you shall eat of that tree, you shall surely die? The only reason we're given in Genesis chapter 2 that that's what would happen to them is because He said so. Because He said, don't eat it. And there it is, the invitation. God was giving them an invitation to interpret life in the world according to His will and not their own. And so that's where we see, again, that where Satan sows the seeds 
of destruction or this temptation. At the root of this temptation is an invitation to doubt the trustworthiness of God. To doubt the truthfulness and therefore then to, to doubt the goodness of God. And believing that lie, borrowing from Erickson, is the taproot of all the other disorders that flow from this fall in Genesis 3. Forward into history through the rest of the Bible and what we experience today. Think about it. What is the essence of trusting someone? I think one of the most common, if you were, if you were forced on the spot to give like a basic Definition, maybe a one sentence step. What is it? What is the most simplest way to, to describe what does it mean to trust someone? I think one thing that would come to mind, or you would agree with this, to be able to depend on someone. I can trust someone if I can depend on them, right? If you're someone I can trust, you're someone I can depend on. And so it's almost as if all this is set up. The maker of all things, God himself, he looks at, he's looking at Adam and he's saying, look, the cosmos is mine. Everything is mine. And I'm inviting you, I'm inviting you to understand that it only works according to my design. And its design is to function for your fulfillment only when you follow my design. Only when you trust me. Only when you depend on me. And only when your source of life and joy is me. And that's what Satan understood. And that's the first thing that he tries to drive a wedge. And so that lie that Adam and Eve believe ultimately, is that they don't need God. We can figure this tree thing out by ourselves. That's, that's what they end up believing. You know, we have all, I think all of us to some degree, if we're, if we're trying to be religious or whatever, we all have, you know, there's plenty of things in our lives that, we'll, that we are so willing to give to God, right? Well, I'm just going to give that to God. It's interesting, those things to be, tend to be the most obvious things that are beyond our control, Right? But when we're honest really with our hearts, with ourselves, we also have all these little areas of our lives where we just will not give it to God. And interestingly enough, that coincides with the things that we still want some control over, right? Think about ambi- you know, your ambition, your students, most of you, you want to be successful in life. You want to, when you're done here, be able to move out in the world and do something worthwhile. Whether that worthwhile is defined by like making some money, whatever, right? All of us have something in us that we want to move out in the world and do something worthwhile. You know, I love Jeremiah 29 that as much as that verse is thrown out, out of context where God so assuredly says, I know the plans that I have for you, right? It's a great and comforting verse. But some of, and some of you love that verse. But then when it comes to your schooling, when it comes to your grades, when it comes to what your job is going to be when you get done with school, right? Yeah, I know God knows the plans he has for me, but... I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'll forsake relationships. I'll forsake my own health to get that grade, to get that thing on my resume, to get that interview, to get that job. Or relationships. We know, we understand. God made us for community. That friendships are a life-giving thing. But you know, you just don't know what she said about me. And besides, what I said about her was true. Or our sexuality, right? We know that God created blessing, marriage for our enjoyment, for our blessing. But we think to ourselves, you know, but we really like each other. And we're not, we're not going that far, really. The moment that you doubt the trustworthiness, the truthfulness, and the goodness of God, you are already on the path to destruction. 
That is the seed that Satan sows here out of the gate. And the bottom line, to confront this lie in our lives, sometimes we've got to stop and ask, am I willing to let God be God in my life? Am I willing to confess and repent of the ways in which I so don't want Him to be? In every and over every part of our lives. The lies we believe about God, but... It doesn't stop there. The next thing that Satan says is lies about sin. And this is actually the first outright lie in verse 4. You will not surely die. That's the first outright lie there that Satan throws out. And you know, again, if we're familiar with the Bible or, or whatever, trying to be Christians or religious or whatever, we understand, you know, sin is bad, sin is serious. But for some reason, why do we find it so hard to believe, admit, talk about that God explicitly tells us over and over and over again that sin will kill us. It will kill us. It will be the death of us. Again, we understand sin is serious, but in our heart of hearts, there's a way in which we go about our lives day to day, week to week, where we really just don't believe it carries that big of consequences. You know, we understand shame. We know what shame feels like. But have you ever wondered why when you try to shame yourself into not doing something it actually makes you want to do that thing more? Or you fall deeper into it the next time? Or how easily we can kind of nestle and privatize like, you know, I'm struggling with it, but like, I'll take care of it. Or it's amazing how quick our favorite passage with our friends is, why don't you take the log out of your own eye? When somebody confronts us with something in our life, it becomes people's favorite verses on the drop of a hat sometimes. No matter the shame, though, it's easy to believe the lie that sin really isn't that serious. That we, we can manage it. I'll deal with it. Right? You know, no one really knows what me and my boyfriend are doing. Who's it really going to hurt? You know, no one knows what I do in my room on my computer by myself. Who's it really hurt? You know, no one really knows that I haven't eaten a real meal in weeks. Who's it really hurting? You know, no one really knows that I'm cutting myself. Who's it really, ironically, hurting? You know, we, we know that Jesus said, and many of his teachings support a saying like this, you know, he who has no sin, throw the first stone. But do we also remember... That Jesus said things like, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Well, yeah, Jesus was using a metaphor, right? It's just a metaphor. Then he goes on to say, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Okay. If anyone causes one of these to sin, it would be better if a millstone were tied around his neck and he was cast into the sea. That's sweet baby Jesus talking right there. He wasn't a baby when he said it, sorry. Ricky Bobby comes out sometimes. <laughs> Why did Jesus say those things? He said those things because he said it would be much better for those things to happen than for you to be cast into hell. Jesus said that. Again, this outright lie. You will not surely die. But most of us, again, most of us live under this impression of whatever some future spiritual death could be, that it's so far removed from our experience that it just, I don't think it's that real. 
And if we believe the lie that it's not real, then why would you care about any present consequences of sin? Why would you want to take seriously sin in your life? But compounding our fall into that lie is verse 5. When he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. And we say, okay, look, I got you. I know that's not true. I know I can't be God. I'm not that prideful, right? But here's what the serpent's saying. Again, what he's saying, another way of saying, look, you don't need God. You can determine this on your own. You want pleasure? Get it. You want comfort? Get it. You want security? Get it. It's right there in the garden for you. Just take it. And this is the problem. The problem is this isn't just a lie that we believe. This is a lie we want to believe. Because, especially in a place like college, when it feels like everything depends on you, your social life depends on you, your grades depend on you, your future depends on you, you want to feel like you're in control of something, right? Brene Brown, uh, self, self-titled, and I believe her because I've read some of her stuff, she calls herself the shame expert because of her research. In one of her books, Daring Greatly, uh, she talks about one of the biggest parts of her research is trying to find the right language so when she asks questions, it'll produce uh, the most diverse results, right? And she says that one question that she has found over the years that has always made an immediate impact uh, and gotten great feedback from participants is this, never blank enough. Now, all of you just thought of something to fill in that blank with. I know you did. Never good enough, never pretty enough, never skinny enough, never uh, successful enough, never funny enough, whatever, right? And, and when she's talking about how that never enough mindset resonates with people that she, uh, that she interviews, she quotes a, another book called The Soul of Money, um, where the author talks to the, uh, talks about the great lie of scarcity. They were all, we're, that we've just been conditioned to think that nothing is ever enough. And, and that, that author says this. For most of us, this is really interesting. I didn't plan this, uh, Rachel and Mark, but your first waking thought is in this quote. For most of us, our first waking thought of the day is I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is I don't have enough time. And whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. Before we even sit up in bed, before our teach, our, our teach, our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. Now, again, think about the craftiness of the serpent. Adam and Eve lived in paradise. There was not one thing that they needed. Not one. But he comes with this lie. Look, God is holding out on you. And they jump right in. Wait, what is God holding out on us? And so they think to themselves, and this is the lie that we believe. What we believe is, look, this isn't sin. This is what we deserve. They believed the lie and they got what was offered. Their eyes were opened. But the grand irony, their eyes were opened. But the grand irony now is they cannot get their eyes off of themselves. Their eyes are opened and the only thing they can see is their own shame. And so that leads us to the last thing here. The lies that we believe. 
about ourselves. As soon as their eyes are open, I think it's profound. One, that the author of Genesis at the end of Genesis chapter 2, before the fall, the last thing he tells us is that they were both naked and unashamed. And then the next time that's brought up, just a few verses later, the first thing that Adam and Eve see when they sin is that they were naked. And this time, they are filled with shame. And so now we know that shame that all of us are so familiar with in so many different ways. This is when it came into the world. One commentator defines shame like this. Shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. We wonder why I I generous. So I read something interesting. We're millennials are leaving college and now we're getting the I generation, uh, which is fitting, I guess. We wonder why the I generation is record is uh, being recorded as the most anxious, most stressed out, and most insecure generation we've ever recorded. Here it is: shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. But what's the lie we believe? It's verse 7. The lie we believe, even though we know shame is also real, is we believe that we can cover it up. We believe that we can cover it up. When I was little, I loved fire. I loved matches. I used to just like strike matches and blow them out. One morning, I woke up before everyone else in my house, and I thought I was being very responsible. I got a, I got a glass. I got the matches. And just one by one, struck a match, blew it out, put it in the glass. Blew a match. Uh, struck a match, blew it out, put it in the glass. I don't know how many I did, just a handful. And then I dumped them in the trash can. And then I took the glass to the sink to be washed, right? I was being very responsible. I turned around, <laughs> and the trash can was in flames. And so I looked around the kitchen. I did the only sensible thing. I covered the fire up with the newspaper. <laughs> had not learned the science lesson that paper is flammable. Um, And so obviously that didn't work, right? The ridiculousness of Adam and Eve covering themselves with leaf clothes. It's absurd. It is as absurd as it sounds. It is. But we have to understand what it points to. That you and I, ever since this moment, we spend our whole lives in myriads of ways covering We're just covering for our shame. This is why Brene Brown has been so popular. Because she's talking about something that we've all known about ourselves for thousands of years. Shame. It's reminded of the the latest Spider-Man movie. Spider-Man, you know, he's a teenager. He's an angsty teenager. And he just wants to be a superhero. And Tony Stark even gives him a nice, awesome suit. But he keeps screwing things up. And so Tony Stark finally shows up. And he's like, look, I'm taking the suit from you. And he says, no, 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 no. Please, Mr. Stark. I'm nothing without that suit. To which Stark says, if you're nothing without that suit, then maybe you shouldn't have it. That was the problem that Peter Parker's wrestling with, right? He doesn't want to be himself. He wants to be big superhero Spider-Man. He wants to wear the suit. That's us. Another one of Brene Brown's popular research question is about vulnerability. And so she'll put on the sheet, vulnerability is blank. So she's getting participants to, when you think of the word vulnerability, what do you think of? Y'all want to know what the number one answer was? Naked. Interesting. Not a religious survey, not a religious researcher. 
Vulnerability is nakedness, being naked. That was the most common answer she's ever gotten to that one. And I think that resonates because you and I, we will use anything to cover ourselves from the unease that we have with ourselves at the core of our being. You will work, 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 work. You will study, 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 study at the forsaking of relationships and time uh, and health even. Because you think success will finally be the thing that will finally make you feel okay with yourself. You will be involved. And I don't know how, y'all's resumes just keep getting longer, right? I'm involved in a hundred student organizations. No, you're not. (laughs) Sorry, you're not. You can put them on your resume. How many people in those organizations actually know you? Not many. You will do anything if it's enough to be okay with yourself. You will run, 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 work out, work out, work out, diet, diet, diet. Because you think if you finally get that look, if you finally fit into that or this, it'll finally be enough to be okay with yourself. You will give your heart, even your body, to anyone because you think maybe finally it'll be enough to make me feel okay with myself and we wonder we we get to the end of these these cycles and we wonder why do i keep running to this when i know it just makes it worse paul in second corinthians 5 puts it like this he says we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked, empty, full of shame. And wouldn't you know, as Paul goes on to talk about in 2 Corinthians 5, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. And it's exactly what Jesus provides, a covering for our nakedness. Not just by taking our nakedness on himself, which he did but by covering us with His righteousness, by covering us with His His perfect life, not only by taking it, but by robing us. As Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made Him, being Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, what Paul is saying is that in Jesus, you're finally covered. You don't have to run. You don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend to be something you're not. You really do not have to be. You really can, in a sense, be naked and not ashamed. Because you've been covered. You see, the audacious claim of the gospel makes to us and to the world is that we will never know true genuineness. We will never know true authenticity in our relationships until we first understand that we no longer have to hide in the presence of this God. Because we've been covered. And we've been ushered into whole relationship with Him through the blood of His Son. And when we understand that, we understand that I don't have to cover myself with other people anymore. I can actually be okay with being an ordinary guy. I'm short. I'm kind of used to that, right? But I can truly be okay with that. 
Jesus says, look, I know who you really are. I know how you really feel. And you really don't have to cover because I covered you. It's interesting. He puts it like this in his letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. He says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can, buy, that, so that you can become rich. And I counsel you to buy from me white clothes to wear to cover your shameful nakedness. Again, I didn't plan this out, but that hymn, Come You Sinners, I love that line. All the fitness He requires of you is to feel your need of Him. You remember how that verse ends? This He gives you. This He gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. Y'all, we can't even know the true depth of our need without His help. That's the beautiful part of the story. This gives you. I can actually own and admit to my shameful nakedness because He's given me a covering and that covering is life. That's an invitation for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we know what it is to run and run and run and run and never get anywhere. We know what it is to hide, but to feel, still feel so exposed. Just knowing that at any moment the right light shined upon us will show us to be the frauds that we are. Father, would you show us the reality of our sin? Would you show us the reality of our shameful nakedness? But would you assure us and wrap us in the comfort of knowing the reality of what you've robed us with? Your love, your mercy, and your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.